You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. Let me uh, welcome a very special guest to, uh, to kick us off, and that is the president of our university, John Hennessy. Welcome, John. Thanks. Well, I don't, I, I don't want to take a lot of time because the true genius today are the members of this panel, and so I want to make sure we leave them enough time. But when I think about what makes a great entrepreneur, I think about four things. First of all, a vision, a vision of seeing to an end goal, of seeing an opportunity to make a change. Secondly, the ability to stay focused on that goal. Lots of small companies that fail, fail because they can't stay focused. Lots of people who fail in their research endeavors fail because they can't stay focused. Third, thinking outside the box, finding innovative solutions to problems. And fourth, seeing the endeavor through Seeing not only the discovery in the lab, but seeing that discovery go outside the walls of a research laboratory and go out and have the impact it can really have in the world. This afternoon, we're going to hear about how to apply these kinds of ideas, this kind of entrepreneurial thinking, to the area of global problems, the kinds of problems that are often not approached in an entrepreneurial way. They're approached with big bureaucracies and lots of people, rather than thinking about new solutions and, and new approaches. We've got a distinguished panel, I think, that's going to help us think about that and think in a different way, really using the kind of pioneering spirit that entrepreneurship uh, really embraces. So let me turn it back to Tom so he can introduce our panel and we can get started. Thank okay. you. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. First of all, I'm going to introduce Kavita and then ask her to move to the other end of the... <laughs> so this is Kavita Ramdas. Welcome her, please. And I'll follow her down here to her, her partner today in international issues will be Chip Blacker. Welcome, Chip, please. In the center, we have a couple of wonderful people who are going to talk to us about energy and environment issues. K.R. Sridhar of Bloom Energy. How was parking? You were okay with parking? <laughs> Better to be lucky than... Kavita, we figured we would, if we didn't solve all the world's problems today, we'd figure out maybe some parking solutions. No, in the I future. know, it's just Stanford's gender bias. That's <laughs> what it was. Oh, see, I'm already, it's already started. It's already started. Okay. And then Jeff Kossoff from our uh, university here. Paul Yock from the School of Medicine and the School of Engineering, frankly. Paul Yock. And somebody I've been sharing DNA with for oh, a long time, my brother, Brooke Byers. So uh, John Hennessy said it really uh, well. He actually took the words out of my mouth. So let me tell you a little bit about the format. I hope this to create a dinner conversation. We don't have any food. We've got some water. But we've invited you over to hang out with us, a couple hundred people you know, here live and, and a a few thousand more uh, on the podcast and video cast. And, and that's really what I want is a, is a dinner conversation because we have three distinct fields here um, in human health, in energy and environment, and in international uh, issues. 
In other words, uh, like when I talk to my great nephew and he says, oh my gosh, if bird flu doesn't kill me, oh, so Katrina likes, hurricane's going to kill me, and if that doesn't kill me, some 9-11 attack's going to kill me. Is that, is, that all we, is that all we got? Is that all we got to look forward to? And obviously, as entrepreneurs, we feel differently. Now, each one of these areas is so deep, as you all know, and has so many things going on around it. You can't even know, open a campus newspaper or even a national newspaper or, or any kind of news and hear, not hear about something very cool going on in each one of these areas. I mean, just today, um, the, the, uh, the School of Medicine just got a big grant for the stem cell uh, building here. And, and I could go on and on. There's an energy uh, conference, Energy Crossroads, starting tomorrow night, including Tom Friedman on Friday. So we, we realize that. And that's, that's, so that's a lot to chew off you know, bite and chew on for an hour together. So what I'm trying to do is, and I think what we have is a unique collection of people who care a great deal about how entrepreneurship and innovation is going to play in those fields. And then we're going to, and what we're going to try to do is, you know, kick off with each area and get, you know, frame it and, and understand the issues and then start looking at some particular solutions and then get a dinner conversation going amongst them because it's very interesting when people from one discipline start to think about what's going on in another. And I don't know if that's been pulled off here lately. We each have so many things going on in each of the areas that it's, uh, uh, it's worth a try. So uh, we are going to do some uh, questions and answers. About halfway through, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you want to write down a question on an index card. Our wonderful ushers will bring an index card and we'll, we'll gather them up and, and do some uh, semi-structured you know, uh, Q&A. Uh, for the last part of this. I, I, let me say this now so I don't forget later and all the excitement. But as we finish up around 6 o'clock, you are all welcome to go across the uh, courtyard or you know, over to the other atrium at the Packard Building and join us for a showcase of all kinds of cool technologies and science uh, going on in Stanford Labs. This is sponsored by the Office of uh, Technology Licensing. So that, that's going to take place with a full reception at 6 o'clock. So you'll get a chance to meet. Hopefully some of the, uh, the panelists will come over and join us as well. All right? So with that in mind, um, let, me, let me start with my brother and Paul. Let's do that. Um, wonder, I, I'd like you guys to introduce yourselves just a little bit to give us some context. I know they have your bios. But why is it that you have, at this stage of your career, with all that you've accomplished, why is it you care so much about the field that I've asked you to come chat about today? In this case, human health. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'll go ahead. And following the uh, dinner analogy, I'm going to set the table a bit and uh, probably talk through the entire appetizer. I hope you don't mind if I go through that. First, let me say I am thrilled to be here for a variety of reasons. First is to be sitting with the, uh, the teaching award-winning Tom Byers, who won the Gore's Teaching Award last year. Um, He's not biased or anything. To be back at Stanford, where I was educated, and to be with my heroes, John Hennessy and, and Paul Yock, and to, di to discuss the three themes of this panel. And as I was thinking about this panel, uh, this, to me, is so typical of Stanford's expertise because what may seem like three independent topics actually, in my mind, all interrelate on a global stage. An example, climate change will affect the habitat of insects and animals, which can affect disease vectors that also affect food and water supply, which will affect 
forced migration, war and poverty. And all these, in my mind, then go together. I'm going to focus my comments then on what I understand, which is the healthcare field. Uh, but I think why is entrepreneurship relevant to these huge things I just went through? Entrepreneurship, as John pointed out, is a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking about solving problems in a non-structured way, not hierarchical, cutting across disciplines, seeing the big picture as well, and daring to be great with big ideas. So environmental science meets international public policy, meets advocacy, meets healthcare, meets energy, meets delivery systems. So the solutions to these problems require public-private partnerships between the private sector, industry, universities, and governments. And I frankly tire of the debate about should those be involved together, should they work together, and all of that. They have to. These problems we're talking about is so important, and they're imminent. I mean, they're honest. They're already happening. And we need more of that because so much is at stake. And now it's all about really, in my mind, innovation. And Tom asked me to talk about a couple of hot areas in healthcare. The common thread of the uh, three areas I'm going to talk about is that is really early detection, early response. And these are breakthrough areas that are happening in implementing science into medicine, not only in rich developed countries, but that can be applied to developing countries and countries that can't afford good health care as well. We've run the experiment on medicine and growing the medical system and spending, and the experiment has failed. We're spending $1.7 trillion a year, $1.9 trillion a year in this country alone, and that's expected to double by 2016. Um, that is, uh, and the proportion of GDP here would be 25%. Imagine what that is in a less developed country. And one of the prime drivers is the aging of the population and the health care issues that go with that. Um, and so we're all in this together. And the thing about health care and disease and uh, caring for health is that there, is, there are no boundaries. There are no country borders. We're all, we're all really in this together. And we all share the same problem, which is we develop drugs in an old-fashioned way which have unforeseen side effects. Most drugs only work on half the people who take them. It's kind of a blind shot. Um, we have uh, mutations running ahead of vaccines and antivirals. So what do we do about all this? So the first is innovation in infectious disease. Uh, there was very little innovation for about 20 years in vaccines, antivirals, and rapid diagnostics. That is just starting to change, so there's a good news and hope on that. Avian flu, if it does nothing else, is wake up our need for innovation around vaccines. Up to this date, vaccines have been made in eggs, and you've all read about the drawbacks of that. They need to be made in cell fermentation systems for rapid turnaround. Now, we're going from eggs, which takes about then all together about six, seven months to go from identification of the strain to vaccine supply. In cells, it could be in three months. That's still not good enough. We need innovation then in universal vaccines, which is biology, molecular biology, parasitology. We need innovation in manufacturing techniques, mechanical engineering, flow engineering, uh, all of that. 
And then in delivery systems are getting all this out to the people who need it, which gets into public policy, and maybe we'll come back to that. Um, is this a big problem? I mean, you don't hear much about avian flu anymore. Well, there are actually people dying of, of H5N1 avian flu around the world. It's not in the headlines because other things are in the, in the headlines, like uh, Anna Nicole Smith. Why? <laughs> Why is that in the headlines and not what we're talking about? Um, or the need for rapid point-of-care diagnostic, and the good news on that, people are working on that. But right now, you cannot take a throat swab and determine, does someone have regular flu or avian? By the way, half a million people around the world die each year of what we call regular flu. Second is innovation um, in diagnostics with patients, for patients with disease. Right now, doctors and patients make a pretty rough estimate of what to do about a patient with disease. And the change going on there is to look at disease at a molecular level. And this is applying the new t techniques of real-time PCR and gene chips so that it is just becoming available now that a doctor can sit with a patient, take a sample, run the test, and actually know the right drug and the right dose for that person. Will they be a responder or not? Or will they have an adverse event? Think about how much that will save in running the clinical trials and developing drugs, breakthrough drugs, but also how much where all that savings could go in the healthcare system. Because if only about half the drugs people take are the efficacious for that person, um, and you could run a clinical trial that's much more tailored, the whole thing, the whole system can be sped up and done much more efficiently. Um, there, a good example of that is a test called Oncotype DX for women with breast cancer. It now, it's been run on 22,000 women now, and it can predict recurrence and also tell if that patient will be a responder or not to chemo, whether they should actually have chemo. And to give you an example of statistics, 90% of women with breast cancer, ER positive, no negative, that's estrogen receptor positive, get chemo, only 4% will benefit. And until recently, that was not able to be told. And then my final one I want to give as an example is, uh, may not seem applicable to the entire world, but I think it is as it's developed and as it comes down the learning curve of cost, and that is consumer genomics. A topic that's in the news today and uh, something that there's concern about privacy, of course, and all of that, but the ability to analyze genetic differences uh, for an individual, it can be done with a simple saliva test, a sample that is, not a simple test. It's a whole genome assay. The cost of doing that is down to hundreds of dollars now and will continue to come down. Now, why is that important? Is that I think what we're going to see in the next five years is moving healthcare to the individual. And this is what's been lost in the healthcare system, and this is why there's so much inefficiency. And if we move the responsibility of healthcare to the individual, when they know what their predispositions are and that are actionable by them, I'm optimistic that something good can come of that too. So, Paul, do you have any reactions yeah. to that? And then I want to open it up, and then we'll, we'll, we'll stay on the healthcare issue. Uh, just a brief point I want to yeah. pick up from Brooke. Uh, that, that, that was beautifully laid out. Um, I, you know, uh, I, by way of background, for, for me, I'm, I'm on a different end of the spectrum than, than Brooke. Brooke's kind of a biotech guy. I'm a gizmologist, uh, sort of the yin and the yak of the, the healthcare experience <laughs> here. But um, 
So I've spent my career uh, uh, helping to uh, develop and test really expensive high-end uh, medical technologies. Uh, and, and one of the things specifically uh, that, that I've woken up to just in the last couple of years is the point you made about the fact that, that we are headed for $4 trillion of healthcare expenditures. And the economists all say that the major driver of the increase uh, in healthcare costs is new technology development. So I'm looking at that and thinking, huh. And, and apropos of our dinner conversation, so um, we, we have an interesting opportunity, I think, on the international uh, front. And, and uh, it goes something like this. I think I have a rough idea about this. So, so we are exporting a pandemic right now, uh, which, which I call uh, the transfat pandemic, right? I mean, we, we yeah. are exporting to the world cardiovascular disease, which will become the greatest killer uh, in the world. Our technologies are very high-end, very complicated. We have a chance as India and China develop these, the, their approaches to uh, do it with a completely different mind frame, a mind frame of cost-appropriate, very good uh, technologies. And we are, uh, as a program at Stanford, we're uh, going to invest heavy uh, hours, man time, and money into looking at how those technologies get reinvented in a global setting. And part of our logic is that we've got to do that here. We, we've got to develop technologies that are, that are more cost appropriate. And maybe the way to do that is to look at an international perspective, bring it back to us. Do you have a comment on that, Kavita or Chip? Um, I'm, not sure that, I'm not sure that it's a comment specifically on this. But I, when I was thinking about the three big challenges, as I see it from the perspective of what we are facing globally, um, my first uh, major challenge um, is what I see as the complete unsustainability of our current way of living and our patterns of consumption, mm. and particularly how we live in rich countries and how the rich live in poor countries. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is a very deeply related issue to this question of, um, you know, if you're talking about healthcare and you're failing to understand that. Um, what we describe as good health is as much an outcome of the ways in which we think it is appropriate to live, um, then we are sort of starting at the wrong end. We are starting, as a doctor would say, from a symptomatic relief of um, the, the problem and rather ignoring what are sort of the root causes of that problem. And I would argue that this, this is the dominant paradigm that we have right now in the world. It's a completely unsustainable paradigm. It's deeply rooted in our current economic system. The assumption that global capitalism, as it currently exists, is the answer to all of us, our problems, and that massive amounts of consumption, both at the physical level of taking in vastly unnecessary quantities of calories to the, to the sort of gross um, level of um, consuming vast amounts of, of material products, they are very much related to the same understanding. And I think... You know, there are many people on this panel who are much better suited to look at this whole question of um, these inequalities. But I think what's important is that it isn't just a current problem. It's the beginnings of a future problem because it's the dominant paradigm for places in the so-called developing world. It's the paradigm that we are all aspiring to, um, you know, hoping to soon become the same overweight, obese, um, in, um, you know, and, and uh, inactive populations that we see as being... Uh, demonstrative or emblematic of having arrived, um, sitting in our big cars, going to eat the meal that you were talking about. We probably don't need appetizer. 
dal and rice is, you know, dal and rice is good enough. And it's actually been probably a lot healthier for, for most parts of the world. So I, I just, I put that out there as I think one way to think about this question of health. Jeff. Well, I just canceled my order. I'm just going to have water tonight. <laughs> Um, I just want to raise a, a build on a point that Kavita made and, and raise another issue about the human health care uh, challenge I think that, that we face, and it and it's, and it's, is related to the environment. I'm, I'm the last one sitting here being a, a victim of cardiovascular disease to not clinical uh, medicine and the value of clinical medicine. I have a stent in me now, and, and, and I, thank, I thank it every morning for, for the, the quality of life that I have now. But I think when you're talking about um, perhaps the, you know, go out of the United States, there are two billion people in the world that do not have clean water to drink, maybe a million, a billion. There are two billion people who do not have adequate sanitation. And so when you're looking at health problems and fundamental trying to deal with, with the health of people, I think you have to start with, with those two issues, the quality of the water we drink and the kind of sanitation that is available. And until we solve those problems, then I think it's going to be very, very difficult to really get a handle on, on the healthcare issue globally and internationally. And until we do it, I suspect we're going to have a lot of uh, the kinds of problems that Chip will talk about to deal with. So Brooke is absolutely correct. These problems are all interrelated. But I don't think, you know, in, in looking at, human, at healthcare, we should ignore what the, the environmental aspect and, and the, the part about just simple provision of clean water and sanitation. I think the challenge here, if you answer, well, what is the challenge? I mean, you, we've been trying to provide water to drink and sanitation for, for years and years and years. Is simply this, that the places where they don't have clean water to drink or they don't have adequate sanitation, they simply don't have the infrastructure or the means of providing that infrastructure. So if you're thinking about a challenge that you'd like to solve, uh, how about the, you know, coming up with uh, water supply and, and sanitation systems that can be delivered on a, on a village-like scale, that can be completely autonomous, that can work on, say, membrane uh, uh, reactor technology, and that are culturally, socially, anthropolo anthropologically acceptable to the people that are going to use them. Because if we don't deal with those issues simultaneously, a technology that is not being used effectively is a technology that's not being deployed effectively and is not a solution. And I think we need to look at those kinds of issues altogether. Let me let Kay, or Chip weigh yeah, in. Yeah, like just a, anything a, we've said. A, a, a point that emphasizes uh, Brooke's comment about uh, interrelatedness. The point that Jeff just made, uh, if you're primarily focused on, on political structure and politics, um, it's a condemnation of many of our existing um, political entities and governance structures. I mean, it's a catastrophic failure on the part of social organization in order to deliver some of these, these basic necessities of life. So in fact, you know, whether um, we all aspire to be um, fat and immobile um, and rich or not, I think for the bottom billion, at least, or the bottom two billion, there are some issues that um, need to be addressed straight up that have to do less with technology or technological innovation and have to do with capacities for self-government. I mean, this is a huge, huge issue. And I mean, it has been for a long time, 
but it's front and center now because of the phenomenon of failing and failed states, which is a foreign policy preoccupation. So um, let me take the approach that I took to parking, which was very counter to what others may have done, to how I think about it, and it's going to be counter to what you've heard so far. I said probably everybody is going to look for the closest parking as they enter into the campus and circle around to find who is moving out. And this building is deep inside. I'm going to drive as close as I can because most people probably won't have the patience and will think that very close to campus they won't find a park. So right outside the closest part was open. I took it. I walked in. <laughs> That's entrepreneurship from, you know, from my perspective. Turning a problem into an So uh, I'm going to sit here and say, if I'm able to have an appetizer, main course, and a dessert, and I'm able to do that in such a way that it can be sustainable, and I can also provide an opportunity for everybody else Absolutely. in the world to be able to do that, Absolutely. I would love to eat all three meals without feeling any guilt as long as I can be healthy. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So the approach to energy is the following. Uh, in B-School, again, if you guys think about it, you'll be taught about vitamins and painkillers. Okay, vitamins are nice to have, but if you're going to write a business plan, think about painkillers because that's really the pain points. You know, if you do something, then it's going to appear. Well, when it comes to sustainable entrepreneurship, so I'm going to take us away from entrepreneurship to sustainable entrepreneurship. When it comes to sustainable entrepreneurship, I would say don't listen to that BS because it's not vitamins, it is not painkillers because the painkiller masks the pain. It does not cure the pain, going back to, you know, go, you know, going back to Kavita's problem. Get into the root cause. And here what you have is you're being told, again, if you go into... You know, thermodynamics 101, science 101, you're told energy is the capacity to do work. So if you believe that work is what creates economic growth and job and opportunities, if you think that your generation and the next generation should be better off than our generation, just logic tells you that you need more energy to do that. Okay. Think about it. You need more energy to do that. So now you have not a pain, but if you continue the way you continue, you got a pandemic out there. Let me take that example. There are parts per trillion of those things that you can breathe from the air that if you breathe is going to cause a problem. And most of the world is telling you you know, skip every other breath. It's okay. You know, the probability of you inhaling that one bad germ out there goes down and you may extend your life. I'm saying, heck no. Find the cure to this so you can be breathing and feeling good about it. In, in just about three months, the sun puts in enough energy in terms of radiation if you're able to capture it. I'm not saying we can that equals all of fossil energy that we have ever had on this planet. So energy is not a zero-sum game. You don't have to feel guilty about using it. The opportunity is finding the way to harness it in a sustainable manner. So, so I look at you, the younger generation, and say, I envy you. 
and you have to look at us who used the fossil energy in a stupid way, that it's your generation and not your next generation that has this opportunity to create a huge $4 trillion market. So feel really good about it, go after it, find the solutions. <laughs> well, such a, let's talk about energy for a little bit. Let's, let's run with that. There's so much buzz on this campus. Um, you, can, you, can, you can just feel it about green tech and uh, the, the Woods Institute. There's a no, new building, where, probably while you were parking, you walked by this and the building being put up in record time, even faster than the stadium was put up, um, to house uh, the Woods Institute, which has got to be the greatest name of an environmental center ever in, in <laughs> history of universities. But um, Jeff and Buzz have, have done an amazing job in, in, in leading that uh, effort on this campus. And I, I know we match or our peer schools are feeling the same way. So there's lots of activity in the university level. So the university's ramping up. It just feels like uh, DARPA and uh, you know, all that wonderful stuff that happened in semiconductors and the internet uh, of 20, 30 years ago. Okay, so we're, we're, on, we're on our way. And then there's people like UK, or you leave uh, Arizona, a comfy job uh, you know, as a professor to go be an entrepreneur. Uh, is, there, is, it, is it prime time? Is it ready for there to be a Google? Uh, Ready there for there to be a, a Microsoft or Intel of, of energy? Absolutely. So again, it is you know timing, okay? It is timing. It is need. It is market. It's politics. It's environment. So you know, I think I was on this campus talking to Charlie Rose where I said energy really is not a one-trick pony. You know, somebody tomorrow came up with this magic wand and took away all the CO2 issues. Energy is still an issue. There are 2 billion people that are just coming out of abject poverty to, to lower middle class. They need energy. We don't have, we can't drill our way out of this problem. We can't smoke our way out of this problem. Okay, we need, we need solutions. And since Edison, there's not been a good idea in electricity. It's about time. Okay, it's, it's about time. So, it, it is about, and also energy today, because it is so scarce, is the cost of electricity has gone up. It's pure supply demand. When that starts diverging, the cost goes up. Suddenly, for every business, no matter what, that's a single large cost in, you know, next to labor costs. When that happens, you start looking into how much energy are you consuming and what are you paying and why. And the inefficiencies in this whole energy generation process and distribution process are so bad that one looks at it and says, even if I started with fossil fuel, why am I consuming only 8% of the total calories as photons with which, it, with which I can read when that light comes from where I burnt the fuel? What's wrong with that picture? It's all about efficiency. It's not about conservation. It's about efficiency. We don't waste, but we should consume. Jeff, what do you think, and, and what do you think about what's going to take to turn these ideas being generated at the Stanford's into action? Well, I fundamentally agree with, 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 with K.O., and I, and I think if I were to make a point, um, it would be the following. And I think a lot of people come at the energy issue from, you know, there might be three different ways in which you sort of come to this point. And I think the students, uh, and some of them are here, were putting on this energy crossroads. 
meeting realized this, and, and so they, they looked at it, that people, we care about energy because we care about CO2 emissions. We care about global warming. We, some people care about energy. They don't really care about CO2, but they care about security or energy security. So they're worried about having a secure supply because it has uh, clearly international strategic overtones and, and political overtones. And some people care purely about economic growth. So whether you come at energy from global warming or uh, from energy security, national security, or from economic growth point of view, we sort of arrived at the same point in space now. And that is, we agree that, as Kao pointed out, that what we've done in the past is not going to work anymore and we need new solutions. Now, I have a huge respect for technology and I think a lot of the, the solutions will be in technology, but I think you put your finger on the right word, and that is efficiency. And at least in the next 5 to 15 years, I think the way we're going to get our handle around uh, the CO2 problem and certainly around the, the, um, the national security problem mm -hmm. and at the same time create incredible opportunities for economic growth is through efficiency. And that means using energy in a smarter way. You can think a lot of the technologies that we're going to need have already been developed. Are they deployed in the right way? Are we, do we have access to the information we need you know, in space and time in such a way that we can make the best use of the energy we have? Can we find ways to take the peak demand curves and shave those peaks off so that in California on a hot summer's day, instead of the dirty coal power plants that are sitting somewhere outside of California that are being turned on to provide that peak power, that peak power is instead coming from all the electric vehicles that are parked outside the building that are plugged into the building and providing that peak power. Those are the kinds of things that we need to start doing. And a lot of the technology, I think, exists. A lot of it will need to be developed, but it's how we take that technology and how we deploy it is really going to be important. And that comes to the, the last point I want to make in that the energy question is fundamentally a human behavior question as well. And until we really fundamentally understand how humans make choices and why they make choices and how we can influence those choices so that we can make the right choices, which is a lot of what efficiency is. And it's not about freezing in the dark. It's about having a good life, but doing it in a way that's smart. I think until we really get our hands around that and spend time looking at that, then we're not going to get the full, the full solution that, that we really need. And I think that's an important issue. Well, you can't say energy without talking about politics and the world and so on. So I, I'd like you two to weigh in on these comments. Because again, we're, we're searching for the role. It, it, you know, like we, I said at the beginning, we have a lot we could talk about in each area. But I'm trying to say, see, if we agree that entrepreneurship and innovation has a role in each one of these areas, then how are they the same or not? But let, let me make sure to give the, the, inner, the global folks a chance here. I mean, I guess I, I think we've raised some interesting issues here. I think given the changing nature of both economic organization and technology, and I think we've been, we've been talking about ways in which that has changed, which is most clearly, I believe, seen in that term, globalization. And, you know, when we, when we say it, I mean, when we think about it, it means, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, the kind of outsourcing that we now talk about, it's not only possible because... 
um, you know, the world is a smaller place. It's actually possible because of certain kinds of technologies. That's what makes that possible. Um, capital can move in certain ways because of changes in technologies. Products can be developed in one place and brought to another place because of certain technologies, right? We had a whole set of things that couldn't happen. And in fact, people can move because of certain technologies that when you had to take a boat across the ocean, it was a whole different story. So clearly, I think that's a, that's a huge issue. I think one of the questions that we will have to grapple with, regardless of how entrepreneurial our technological solutions are for creating new sources of energy, and I believe with KR that there are, and I'm looking like he is to all of you, for lots of interesting ideas. I guess there are two pieces that um, it raises for me. One is that because of this new globalization, the inequalities that economic growth and political, particular uh, political systems created that formally could be resolved within the context of the nation state. Um, so within a country, within a particular um, you know, set of boundaries. Um, and the imbalances in power, not just the inequalities that we spoke of, but the imbalances in power, which also have to do with self-image, with dignity, you know, with a whole set of things that are not just about whether you're living on $2 a day. You might be living on $380 um, a day, and you may still have issues with how you are perceived and the imbalance of power in your society. Whereas I think maybe even 20 years ago, those imbalances and inequalities could be resolved within the context of states. Today, in part because of technology, those inequalities, just like disease, have no national boundaries. So they are being those conflicts are now being played out on a global scale, which means we do have the repercussions of increased inequalities in China and India and other places don't just have repercussions for those societies. They have profound repercussions for us. The impact of NAFTA on poor farmers in Mexico is deeply related to the whole immigration question that we had you know, in, in, in droves talking about that last year. So those things are not unrelated to each other. Um, so, I mean, I think greater equality can't just be um, a single goal of one country. Greater equality and sufficient resources for creation of new um, energy or, or new technology, by definition in the world that we live in today, must be must be done across countries, must be done in a way so that the U.S., for example, should be putting into putting into place today policies that will enable it to be um, a happy country amongst other countries, even if it isn't the dominant superpower that it is today. And those are the policies we need to be thinking about um, for the future. Yeah, two, two uh, comments, one on uh, energy and one on globalization. Um, Certainly the role of technology in uh, increasing levels of efficiency is important and is quite central to the process. Uh, but there's a huge public policy dimension to this as well. Um, if you're Tom Friedman, then you think you know, the most um, effective single act with respect to energy policy that the government could take would be to double or triple um, taxes on each gallon of gas so that you drive down consumption. Um, you know, energy is still relatively inexpensive in this country, which is why we're so wasteful. Um, we have a pretty good set of tax incentives in place in order to encourage people to do these things. But it's a huge public policy issue, right? And I think it's some combination 
of technological innovation and the political will to bear the costs associated with downsizing our appetites for fossil fuels or you know whatever it is. That's traditionally how you shape uh, policy outcomes. Um, uh, you know the uh, free market is a, a wonderful place, except when it results in in you know income disparities that are greater in the United States than they have been since 1928. Then I then I would suggest we need some adjustment to tax policy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's why I'm a Democrat, not a Republican. Um, no, it's true. It's true. Um, the point about the point about globalization that that I would make that, that the the point that Kavita made about uh, the kind of transformational effects of technology. Um, my cut at it is a little bit different, although not con uh, contradictory. Um, before the development of mass communications and the internet and the capacity to kind of spread this stuff instantaneously, many regimes around the world were able to hold the line against change, yeah. uh, pretend to the outside world that these vast disparities in income and privilege and access did, did not exist. Um, the extreme example of this, if you will, is the uh, DPRK, the um, Democratic People's Republic of, of Korea, uh, where most of its population believes that the two most powerful countries in the world are the DPRK and the United States of America, literally, most powerful, because there's one radio station in the, in the DPRK, and all the radios that are sold can tune in one station, right? And that one station tells them that uh, you know the DPRK is locked in this battle of wills with uh, you know the uh, U.S. It reminds me of the scene out of the film uh, *The King and I* that was made in the 1950s. The um, uh, map that the king's children oh, yes. looked at—the map of the world. Remember, Siam was like two thirds <laughs> the size of uh, of uh, Asia. Uh, well, it's no longer possible to do that, which is a great thing because it connects people around the world, it creates solidarity around a whole set of issues that were impossible before, but man, does it exacerbate the sense of social, economic, and political deprivation on the part of those who have been systematically oppressed by their own regimes. So it's very much a uh, two-edged sword. And again, for me, because this is what I think about, it's a huge governance challenge, again, right? Because international institutions are in no sense equipped to deal with this. These are 1945 models. This is like driving a 1945 Chevrolet, well, actually, a 1945 Cadillac, because people are very, very well taken care of at places like the United Nations. Well, that's, that, that's great, except it's completely inappropriate for the world we live in today, yet they're very, very difficult to change because the, stakeho the stakeholders are sovereign states. And if you can tell me how we talk the French into giving up their permanent veto in the UN Security Council, as an example. I'm picking on the French. I could, <laughs> I could have said the UK, um, uh, where it might have been appropriate in 1945. It is clearly not appropriate in 2007. I said this one time at a public lecture in Latvia, and the French ambassador was there. And he literally stood up and started arguing with me about the importance of, of, of French preservation of the uh, of the uh, unit veto at the um, UN Security Council. So if you can tell me how we can talk the French or the British into surrendering their veto power at the um, UN Security Council, then you know, we're on the road to salvation in terms of international <laughs> organizations. Ben Parkey. All right, Kay Hart, and then I have a quick announcement to make. Um, there's an extreme importance for policy in all these debates, whether it's healthcare or energy. 
But in addition to that, let me emphasize from an entrepreneurial perspective, again, sustainable entrepreneurial perspective, which is what most of you are here to hear about, is for me, I'm neither a Democrat nor a Republican. I'm a capitalist entrepreneur who believes that you can do good and make good. Okay? And I see technology as an equalizer. The reason I see technology as an equalizer, let me give you an example. When we, had, when we needed massive infrastructure for telecommunications, in the developing world, India, China, even in a city like Mumbai, you, you, you move into a flat, you put in your application for a landline phone, seven years later somebody may knock at your door saying, I have a phone for you. Maybe. Maybe. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have to pay him something to get something. You have cell phones, a infrastructure-less communication device that does not lead that solid infrastructure. I mean, it does have infrastructure, but not at the levels that you need for landline phones. As you walk out of the airport, you can pick up a phone, but that's not important. What's important is what Muhammad Yunus was able to do that in the poorest, with the poorest of the poor in Bangladesh. He created entrepreneurs of people and increased their life. With this, with this technology equalizer, okay? So access is what empowers people. The two billion people, the reason they are where they are, the reason they don't drink the good water is they don't have access to clean energy, clean electricity. If you give me clean electricity anywhere in the world, I'll give you clean water. That's a good one. Okay? Yeah. So if we are able to, and the beauty here again is these multiple forces coming from various places coming into the exact same place. In the process of figuring out the most efficient ways to generate electricity, you cannot go into transmission and distribution. You have to generate it where it's needed. So there is no central power that controls who gets power and who doesn't. Can I just make one, one, one comment on that? Because as you were saying that, I thought, yeah, you have the potential to deliver clean water if you have the electricity, but if the incentive structure is such in a corrupt system, I'm going to sell that someplace else. No, this no, no, is no, why no. it's a, 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 a yeah, it's a public policy uh, issue. Let me just walk you through again. The entrepreneurial thinking I'm asking for is, I don't want a PG&E telling me if I if I'm not on their landline, if I'm not on the grid, I'm out of luck. Out of grid, out of luck. I don't want that system. I have a box. That box is going to generate electricity for me. If I can afford to pay it, borrow it, lend it, whatever, I'll be able to use it. If I'm a small fishing village in Bangladesh, I'll use the same model I used for the cell phone. I cannot afford a cell phone, but there's a cell phone lady. I go pay her, and I go use that system. That's the most profitable telecom company. So I have a box. That box generates electricity. If I want clean water, I can buy it from that lady. That lady gets a loan from a micro-lending organization. Forget the bureaucracy. You need someone to enforce property, every, every, property rights. So, absolutely. You every need human someone being. to enforce property rights. Every if that has being. any market for it, there, there will be people who seek to exploit that for happen. their own purposes. That's what will happen. Your generation is going to create that because every human being is an entrepreneur. Now this is beginning to sound <laughs> governance. This is great. Why Chad, now this is beginning to sound like Thanksgiving in our house. <laughs> oh, yeah. We finally got there. But so the good but news is there's wanna, no public policy issues. Uh, with, let me uh, interrupt you. Oh, see. So I, <laughs> Well, that you want nice to go back to our, our model, but that's why Professor Yunus is running for government now. 
in right. Bangladesh. Yes, he's right. going to do that because right. he's tired he's of the corruption holding him up, and he's going to, you know, he, he's going global as well. But I, I think to bring this back to entrepreneurship, so I think the best thing we can export yeah. is entrepreneurial thinking. And, you know, there's a, sometimes angst, well, why are we educating people here, and then they leave and they go back to their country of origin? Fine. Yeah. Isn't this what we want? Because we agree that all these problems do not recognize borders. Right. We're all in this together. We all ought to be educating and moving people around all over the world, just, you know. And, and take responsibility for what we do. Go back to the healthcare thing, though. One problem that, that I have a lot of angst about is we have a shortage of nurses in the United States. So what do we do? We relax the visa application on nurses, and we're bringing in 60, 100,000 nurses a year in the United States. Instead of solving our nursing school problem and paying nurses more, so that we will train them here. We're bringing them from uh, countries in Africa and Asia which have a desperate need for nurses. So this is this lack of global thinking, lack of education on the part of our national leaders, lack of... Now, if, why don't you go train the White House in entrepreneurial thinking? <laughs> right. well, we'll get, a, wait, we'll get wait, on the can, bus. Can, you know, I, I'm looking at my colleagues who, who, uh, do, who work uh, on entrepreneurship education here at Stanford. I'm looking at who we teach in the audience. I see a lot of our students, there's Kathy Eisenhart and Tina Selig and I have the pleasure of leading the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. Paul Yock runs a wonderful program in medical devices called uh, BioDesign Network. And um, let, let's take a moment right now, let, let me allow you to explain that and how it's a multidisciplinary approach. Because I, I mean, one thing I'm reminded of by listening to everybody, it's, and we do try to encourage our students, it is, no one size fits all. It's very important to take advantage of the, everything that Stanford has to offer in terms so, of learning. So, so this dinner conversation just took a steep turn. Okay, we're going to go down to, to yeah, real let's detail. Go, yeah, no, I'll just okay. give an example of, so, of okay, what, so, so quickly, what we're doing with our, our uh, students. What we do is, is uh, we, we try to develop teams of inventors uh, in the medical technology space. And what we found, been experimenting uh, with this for eight years now, uh, the, the teams uh, work only when you combine a doc, a uh, couple engineers of different flavors, a business person, you, we uh, put the team together for a year. We set them on to a real clinical problem. Brooke helps us with those clinical problems uh, to, to focus on. And a couple of things happen. So, so uh, first of all, it's obvious that, that you need different expertise, right? That, that's a, that's mm -hmm. a given. Uh, Secondly, it's obvious that, that teams work better than individuals, and there's all of, you know, we, we know this from athletics and everything else. But there's one other thing that's really important, and, and that has to do with innovation entrepreneurship. There is a spark that occurs when, when you throw people who haven't lived together, don't speak the same language uh, together in a team, and you force them to, to come up with something. And that, that is a magical uh, spark. That, that's the thing that surprised me most, I guess, out of the program. And, and what role uh, does public policy or, you know, uh, deployment internationally play in the thinking of these students? Or are they just thinking about, is it strictly, I'll just got to get through the FDA process here? Yeah, so, so that's they, the problem yeah. with the way we've constructed so far. And that, that's why we're, we actually are going to do a new team, uh, I hope, with uh, Indian nationals mm -hmm. that are going to do their needs finding in India and, and teach the rest of us about that uh, sensibility about doing cost-appropriate technology development, which we have no idea how to do. Certainly, we, I, I know in, in our classes um, on entrepreneurship, we've, we have 
brought in a good bit of discussion about context, we call it, which is the, the externalities, the, the, what the entrepreneur doesn't have in their control or the entrepreneurial teams, and that includes the, the public policy issues and, and international deployment. Well, when we were talking about sort of, you know, picking what we thought the three big issues were, I think you know, I, I mentioned the, the two that I, the, the first two, but I think we, we haven't mentioned a third, which, um, so I, I said unsustainability of our current way of living, the changing nature of, the, of current economic organization and technology. But I, for me, and you may say I'm biased given uh, the organization I lead, but I think we have a big deficit in entrepreneurial thinking because to this day, 2007, half of the world's population um, has had very little say, entrepreneurially or otherwise, in much of the critical decisions about how our world is currently organized and has been organized for hundreds, thousands of years. That includes how societies should be developed, how, econo how e economies should run, and what economic and work systems should look like, um, what politics we should have, how we should live or not live, what values we, you know, what defines a family. And that half of the world's population that I'm referring to are women. Mm -hmm. And I think in the way that we see ahead of us, with technology shifting in the way that it has, um, you know, these are changes for which you don't need big muscles. And the big muscles that you do need are the ones women have plenty of, and they're up here. And I, I, I mean, I say this in all earnestness because I think we, we profoundly underestimate what it has done to us as a global society to have 51% of our population essentially out of core decision-making from the family to the community to how our workplaces are designed to how we conceive of energy. And when I think entrepreneur, I don't think necessarily of people who make money. Part of what makes Dr. Yunus's system work and part of what makes our work at the Global Fund for Women possible is that women across the globe have incredibly creative, out-of-the-box thinking, entrepreneurial, risk-taking thinking about how things should be organized. And for the last you know, 5,000 years of human history, their voices have really not had much of a chance. Now that's changing and in part it's changing because of technology. When you have a system that allows women who are deprived the right to have public space, which many women are, and you see women using grants from the Global Fund for Women to have internet access, and they're, they're do, using email to mobilize and organize, then you see the potential for a very different kind of um, of a, of a vision of how society could be organized. When you see people using this kind of technology to be able to increase their voice and their ability to make a difference in their societies, you begin to see what potential this kind of entrepreneurial thinking has. So I would say that in addition to what we might see in terms of its ability to create capital and new technology, I think we have huge untapped resources just waiting to kind of step in and make a difference in terms of the politics and economies um, and governance systems, frankly, of our times. I mean, a recent World Bank report just came out saying um, when women are actually um, in significant numbers in charge of a project or a program, corruption significantly right. goes down, right? right? I mean, right. this is connected. Right. They're not unconnected issues. No, they're not. Can I make a point on that? And I want to make one uh, comment. If you would like to uh, ask a question, we're going to do this in a, in a way that sort of you know, maximizes our chance to get it uh, answered. Um, 
raise your hand, and we're going to distribute little uh, three-by-five cards during the next portion. Just raise a hand, and Usher will come by and do a three-by-five card, and then pass them to the end, and we'll collect them, okay? Just raise your hand and keep them. Okay, thank you so much. Chip? The, uh, the, the point that I would make is the same point that Kavita just made, but at a more general level, and that is I think it's very risky to slip into uh, a way of thinking about entrepreneurship that somehow associates it with our Americanness. Um, as, as, as our kind of genetic code and that it's our job to teach people, the less fortunate people outside the borders of the United States, how, how to be entrepreneurial. Some of the most entrepreneurial people I've ever met in my life live in places where you would least expect to find it based on kind of pre-existing notions about uh, political, social, and economic development in various parts of the world. That's one point. Two, goes back again to why, why has entrepreneurship uh, been so successful in the uh, U.S. context. Can you say regulatory policy? I mean, it's kind of like a penetrating glimpse into the obvious, right? The system, this system by and large is structured to reward people for taking risks. Mm -hmm. And when it's, when it's the other way around, which is what Kavita's talking about, it doesn't work. I don't care how many seminars you have about free up your imagination, you know, do this, <laughs> do that. It's not, it's not going to work if you live in a society that's basically hovering over you so that it can confiscate whatever it is you manage to acquire. Uh, um, uh, the uh, part of the world that arguably I know the most about, because um, it's certainly not about my own country, um, <laughs> is, is the former Soviet Union, um, Russia in particular. And there you have all of the ingredients for kind of an extraordinary economic breakthrough, but because of the political culture within which one is forced to function, you spend most of your time figuring out how much you're going to have to pay at what level in order to get anything done. I mean, Russia is arguably one of the most uh, corrupt places in the world. It has to do with incentive structures. To engage in corrupt practices in Russia is a perfectly rational thing to do because of the governance structure. So you need to get those pieces right or else nothing else is going to work. So again, part of the reason why we have been as successful as a polity as we have been is because of the regulatory structure. So uh, as you're writing the questions uh, on the note cards, pass them to uh, one of the, uh, let's say, over there, raise your hand, Jeff, that, on that section. And then this middle section, how about the, uh, this aisle here? And as, as a matter of fact, in this section, bring them to the aisle either way. We'll stay away from the cameras. Thanks. So when you're done with your car, just bring them to the, the end and uh, we'll grab them. You know what? Uh, I'm looking at the time and I know it's going to go quickly. Um, I, wish we, I wish we could have breakfast. <laughs> I wish we could have a midnight snack and stay. I have so many questions for you. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to one um, because I, I'm looking around the room and, of course, the, the, other than my, my wonderful members of my family or our family that are here, I'm looking at students, and, and you know, that, that what gives me so much hope. So I'm going to ask you an odd question. Uh, what makes each, I mean, each one of you have established, and I'm just to remind everybody, this, these folks are at the top of their game. I mean, they're at the top of the game in their field. And, they, and I'll, I'll, I chose them, or we chose them, because we also knew they had a passion for entrepreneurship and, and innovative thinking. So I'm going to ask them, what makes you hopeful? You know, you sort of started down that uh, track, you know, and that's what got me thinking about that. 
So um, maybe I'll let you go last this time to kind of come around. But I'm just doing the popcorn method. Anybody who wants to just go first, just what makes you hopeful uh, right now? If you were, if we, we were just sitting with you and me and one of our students in the room, I'll, I'll take a, a first swing at that yeah. broad cut. So, so the students, uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, gray hair. Students have changed a lot in in the last ten years, and I, I'm seeing much more uh, focus on these global issues on entrepreneurship in service of social and, and I love that. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's a terrific uh, time right now. We see that in, in our courses that other academics agree here. Maybe yeah, let me elaborate. I mean, we come back to this energy crossroads and the origin of it. And the students came in October and said, we want to do something that gives back to what we're getting from Stanford. I mean, this really was the conversation. I said, well, what do you want? What are you interested in? We want to organize a conference and explore some of these issues that we're talking about, this confluence of, of interests on, on energy. And it, I said, well, what are you thinking? Oh, it's going to be three days. We're going to have 60 speakers, concurrent sessions, and all that. I said, you're nuts. They said, oh, no, we're not. And we're going to get Tom Friedman. And I said, you're oh, really nuts. Yeah. No, I actually believe them on that one because I think if students ask Tom Friedman to come, they'll come. If I did, no way. <laughs> right. So they're smart. But anyway, we worked with them and we got the conference down into, you know, but they actually came up with the idea. They formulated the idea. It was their idea in the first place and they said they recognized this problem, but they also wanted to recognize that not only were they here to get an education, but they were here to participate in an educational process and they wanted to give back. That's what gives me lots of hope. Kind of reminds me of Berkeley in my undergraduate days without the... <laughs> I'm surprised you remember the undergraduate days. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was walking into that, right? <laughs> I said, do not mention Berkeley around my brother. Um, what about you, Chip? What makes you hopeful? Uh, what makes me hopeful is the uh, quality of, of, uh, of uh, people from Stanford who go into public life public service. I've taught here for a very, very long time, uh, sh since shortly after the invention of fire, when people ask me how long it's been. <laughs> no, it's true. it's true. It's been a really long time. And the, the students interested in the kinds of issues that I uh, teach about have always been good. The quality has just gone up and up and up and up uh, over the years. And increasingly, they not only think of, of public service as a part of their uh, obligation, but but public life, and that includes a willingness for the first time in a long time for, for people to stand for elective office. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually very, very hopeful about this. Um, and it's, I'm not exactly sure how to account for it, but um, it's, uh, it's a very, very positive trend. And it's not just at Stanford. So. Yeah, I noticed as well. K.R., Brooke? Have you? Uh, locally, if you, take, if you take Silicon Valley as an example, um, I think the valley has come to its, uh, at least its midlife crisis, if you want to think about it that way, where there are enough people who have made enough wealth doing whatever they did. And they're still finding a vacuum, the vacuum of giving back and doing something. And I think when they think that way, they're saying, do I want to do one more of the same thing that I did to add delta to an increment that is not going to matter in the long run, or am I going to do something good? 
And I think I see that a lot in the valley. Okay, that gives me hope. The second thing that I see is I'm on Stanford campus, so the very last line in Tom Friedman's book that you talked about comes from Bob Romer, who says a, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> okay, so that comes from him and you, you, know, you guys, the students. And so what I see as a hope out there is really that we were in a regime in this world where for a price you could get things. That, mean, that meant that the rich could have whatever they wanted mm -hmm. and, and, and create a inequality. I think there's a realization coming within us that when resource trumps capital, which is slowly where we are coming, it doesn't matter if you have money. I'm not going to give you my water rights, even if I'm poor, because that's, yep. that's cool. The same thing is happening with all sorts of materials. That makes us think very differently from a sustainable perspective. And that's the crisis we're just coming into. And why, we, why didn't we do it earlier? Necessity is the mother of invention. Right. You, right. You know, it wasn't necessary then. It's necessary now. So in fact, as much as we may have argued on policy, I'm totally on the same side here mm -hmm. of saying everything that we do here in technology is going to be a leveler that is going to help those economies go up. And that, you know, you asked about my passion. The reason I'm passionate about what I do is I truly believe that in the middle of Africa, where it's totally dark if you look at it, and no infrastructure, the new technologies that you guys develop that don't need infrastructure, that use local resources, is the only way they're going to get power. And, and the water. fact that we need that kind of power is the only reason we're going to invent it for them. Right. And that's the beauty. Okay. Well, and I would add that um, what gives me hope is that, in fact, KR, there are people in those places who may very well be coming up with the technology. I mean, I have had the pleasure of making a grant to... Um, increasingly um, sophisticated um, individual entrepreneurs, a, a woman physician in um, Uzbekistan on the Aral Sea, who began to see the connections between birth defects showing up in her patients who, she's an OBGYN, she wasn't trained as an, as an um, environmentalist, but she was beginning to see what was happening with her patients. She, she dug back into the root causes, found it was connected to the, desal the, the salination of the Aral Sea, what was happening in terms of um, pesticide use in the region, um, there is now a massive program that is being um, spearheaded by local women who um, you know, are farmers and are challenging the basis of how that e economy is organized. I mean, to me, I think um, Africa, to me, is a perfect example. Some of the most creative work on um, how to think about new policy structures, how to bring voices of dispossessed, marginalized people into the conversation, and how to think about, when you say necessity is the mother of invention, the places that don't have power are the most likely yes. to be the places where people are thinking creatively about how you can harness what local resources there are. And so I think there's going to be some very exciting, there is already, I mean, we receive over 3,500 proposals a year from women's organizations, many of whom are organizations where the women have dictated the, the, the application because they're illiterate, but they have brilliant ideas about what they want to see happen in their society. So that gives me incredible hope. And I'm, I, I think it's, it's that merging of what's coming from outside of the United States with what we have to offer um, that will give us um, 
you know, possibilities for the future. Well, all of your heroes are mine, but I have to mention about something about Kavita and the Global Fund for Women. Um, as we sit in the Hewlett Center, the Hewlett Te uh, Teaching Center, it was Bill Hewlett who 20 years ago uh, gave a founding uh, grant to the three women in Palo Alto as they started uh, that uh, NGO. So they're celebrating their 20th anniversary, and it's just appropriate. It's one of those kind of ironies that we're sitting in, the, in, the, in another, uh, you know, uh, legacy uh, thing for, for him, and it's pretty, pretty cool. And we're 200 feet away from where Hewlett and Packard, um, you know, created uh, some of the inventions that started that company and, and sort of, you know, defined modern entrepreneurship, at least Silicon Valley style. Brooke, do you have anything to say, or should I get to the questions? So hopeful, uh, two areas. One, um, on the energy side, um, in the newspaper today, you were all reading about TXU, the big buyout of the uh, utility company in Texas. And what I like about this, as someone who's followed environmental defense and NRDC and all of this so far, they were called ahead of time to help that deal be made. Now, this is a deal of, of just, you know, super powerful finance organizations and Usually they just think about, you know, the economics of it all. But here are now, I, you know, maybe I, I'm thinking maybe we're at the tipping point of this whole thing about energy sustainability, alternative sources of energy, because not only are they going from 11 to three new coal power plants uh, as a commitment in the state of Texas. Now the governor has kind of has new quotes out now that he really likes this, this kind of deal. And they're committing to developing new sources of energy um, wind, solar, fuel cells, and so on like that. So something's going on there, and the new report by the International Committee on Climate Change. Um, the thing that I'm, uh, the, another thing I'm very hopeful about is just the science. And if we go back to the science, so all these things we talk about seem so huge. Where's the slingshot? Where's the, the turning point? Where's the leverage? Going into public policy is huge leverage. I think Stanford people have figured that out you want to have a big change, go do that. Um, and the leverage with science is amazing. And I think in medicine and healthcare, we can reduce healthcare costs, we can miniaturize it all, and we can get it, uh, can be deployed by um, people with very little healthcare training around the world because we're coming out of the dark ages about how all that works because of genomics and the kind of miniaturization nanotechnology that people like Paul Yock and his group are developing. Well, I have to take advantage of having you here to ask you some questions, uh, like especially the following one. It's pretty clear we're not going to be able to get through all of them, so I'm going <laughs> to in the next 12 minutes. So why don't I urge everybody, and I'll say it again, that we're, we're, when we break at 6, there is a wonderful showcase of technologies um, out of the labs of Stanford put on by the Office of Technology and Licensing, um, uh, Technology Licensing, over at Packard, which is just across the atrium. And, um, in the courtyard, so please come over and join us, and, and we can you know, probably do that in, even more informally than this dinner conversation we're having. Ask us but, for 15-second answers. And oh, we'll here we go. It's, it's like a game show, right? Yeah. Deal or no Speaking deal. Here we go. All right. and, this is, and I love this one. To become a global leader in areas like healthcare, energy, and policy, things we're talking about, what skills would be relevant, and how would you go about developing if you were 21 years old again? It's a time machine. 15, 15 seconds. 15 seconds. 10, all right. Learn one language that is not English. Good. And be fluent in it. Okay. You know what? We'll vote for the best answer at the end, okay? <laughs> so remember this. Learn one language, okay? Chip. 
cap off your disciplinary training by um, interdisciplinary education so that you understand more than one thing well. Language, interdisciplinary education. In whatever skill set you are, deconstruct the problem, see where the efficiency flaws are, find the efficiency. You're so intellectual. <laughs> I don't even know how to That's recap really that one. Could you deconstruct that, that one? <laughs> just, okay. just say efficiency. Right. We'll call that the deconstruct. I think learn to deal with uncertainty in a real way. Understanding uncertainty and how to deal with it and making decisions is fundamentally what it's all about because nothing is cut and dried. Absolutely good. Paul? Uh, pick three other people who are smarter than you. <laughs> in work I just pick six. <laughs> <laughs> that was easy. Find a mentor. Find a mentor. All right, everybody got those? All right, we'll do this real quickly. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm voting. <laughs> what do you think of that one? Yeah, yeah, okay. Mentor. What do you think of what was that one? Three smart people. All right. Three smart people. And we know what's going to win. It's the deconstruct. Yeah. So we, yeah. I, I, to heck with it. We, Remember that we know it's going to win. Whatever it was, it was good. <laughs> it was so good. Okay. Um, Is that because no Americans are willing to learn another language? That's a good one. It's because we can't. Oh, here we go. This is a, a big debate on campus now because it's a trend. Can you be an entrepreneur in a nonprofit? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, no. <laughs> this is an NGO. So maybe we should, we should recuse her. But can you be a, 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 this comes up a good bit in our, in our courses. And, there, and it, we even have competitions that all comes of social entrepreneurship versus for-profit. Right. I mean, right. how much of it is at odds? I know we touched a little bit on it earlier, but can you be an entrepreneur in, in a non Oh, well, I think it has nothing to do with for-profit or non-profit. Okay. It, it, it's, John set it up, you know, it's, focus, it's a way of thinking, it's a willingness to fail, it's uh, thinking big, it's, it's going and ta go attack problems that no one's working on. Don't be, you know, in entrepreneurship in, in a small business in Silicon Valley, you don't go start the fifth company doing what's already been done. You go do something that's not being gone after. There's, you know, President Carter formed the Carter Center in, in Atlanta, and may, many of you know he works on, on global health issues. He works on healthcare problems no one else is working on. So he, he doesn't do things that other, that other people are into. And so the frustrating thing to me of some nonprofits is they replicate what's going. Yeah. So, okay. uh, John Doerr, you, you know, if you, you know, many of you have heard him talk, there's an entrepreneur is somebody who can do a lot more than anything than anybody thinks is possible, with a lot less than anybody That's thinks sad. is possible, a lot faster than anybody thinks is possible. You can be in the federal government and be an entrepreneur. Absolutely. I mean, that's what you, you're nodding your head because that's, that's, how you, that's probably a big criteria for your grants, right? Oh, that's absolutely. Some, I mean, I would say that the way we work is essentially the equivalent of how a VC um, firm in Silicon Valley makes its decisions about who to invest in and how Bill Hewlett made a decision about investing in the startup of the Global Fund, which didn't happen in a garage but in a kitchen. And my expectation is, is that there are going to be a lot more kitchens around the world cooking up some really interesting stuff in the next, you know, watch this century, guys. Um, I, I think it's, I think there's, there's no question about so, that. So, Chip, can you be an entrepreneur in government? You can innovate in government, but it's much, much harder because um, government bureaucracies are the physical embodiment of, of Weberianism, right? I mean, that is what it means to be a bureaucracy, and there are good reasons. And 
you can be a good policy entrepreneur, and that's the stories we all like to tell, and I yeah. came with three stories that I won't tell today, that are good news stories about um, you know, entrepreneurship yielding good policy. Bear in mind, Ollie North was also a policy entrepreneur, and that got us, that got us Iran-Contra. Right. So there are reasons why governments function the way they do, but it is possible to do it, and it's possible to do it by reference to a set of kind of respectable policy goals in full compliance with the law. Any comments from the rest of you? All right, let's see if we can find it. Um, oh, no, right. well, we touched on it earlier, so let's go for it. It seems like the U.S. has forgotten Latin America, and that's why we see massive immigration from the South. I mean, it kind of was mentioned. Uh, we need to lift the people out of poverty. Any ideas? This is a fellow from Peru. Olga, I'm sorry, a woman from Peru. I want to do something a little Well, different. I think you can borrow from a number of models that have been successful around the world. Um, the Chinese have elevated three to 400 million people out of poverty since Deng Xiaoping um, started the reform process and since the Chinese Communist Party fully embraced it in 1984. It comes with a certain social cost, we all understand. I mean, it's a, uh, there is a ruling party, um, and it's also a very corrupt place. Um, I think basically you can put in place sensible economic policies and social policies, regulatory policies, to, to change incentives. It, uh, that, that can eventuate in people becoming um, less poor than they are, and hopefully at some point more affluent by reference to a sustainable model. It's not rocket science. It's fundamentally about political leadership, as it always is. And it's fundamentally about um, the corruptibility of systems. And the less corrupt the system is, the more efficient it tends to be, and the more progress you can make. Also, um, less income inequality. So yeah, it's possible, sure. I know a lot of Latin American feministas who would say it's kind of good that the US has forgotten about uh, Latin America for a while. The kind of intervention we've seen we have over 50 them. years uh, prior to this hasn't necessarily always brought Latin America the kind of um, results that um, it would have liked to see. And so, you know, there's, there are some pluses and minuses to not being on the radar screen. Actually, you know, there's a lot we can learn from, you know, Costa Rica, for example. You talk about uh, natural capitalism and how to value conservation and yeah. how to yeah. promote Absolutely. conservation. It's a world leader. Albert Umania, who was a student at Stanford, Alvaro Umania, who was a student at Stanford, who became the first Minister of State for the Environment under the Arias government, actually came up for this, 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 this idea. And so, you know, it's not a matter of, you know, us teaching them. I think we should open our eyes and start learning, you know, a lot about them. You go to Peru, there are pre-Inca terraces there that are still being farmed 700 years after they were, they were created, and there are water supply systems that feed those terraces they're still farming them. They got something right. They, learned, they knew something about sustainability. Maybe we should start learning from them. <laughs> How about this one as the last one? Because it, this is, after all, the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar Series, and we've been trying to take that kind of cut at these, uh, these big challenges. All right, so this is business models. All right, how do you monetize a global problem like CO2 reduction? Until, and this is a comment here. Until the problem is monetized, capitalist countries will not solve the problem. Or maybe another way to put it is entrepreneurs will not solve the problem, at least the entrepreneurs we're talking about. Yeah, I agree. I mean, so <clears> I think if you evaluate a project, you should do a life cycle cost analysis of that project. 
And so all the costs that go into it have to be factored in and then make and, and charged accordingly. And so you pay the true cost of whatever thing. So if you want to put a subsidy in to, to, uh, to re reduce the cost and, and keep the price of gasoline, for example, artificially low, then you're not going to get any progress on CO2. But if you put the real costs in there and you monetize the cost of the CO2 emissions, then you can start making progress. Because at that point, and you're looking in a life cycle, things that might not make any sense start making a hell of a lot more sense, and they'll get a market, and they'll become more competitive because of the fact that you've, you've, you've put a real level the playing field kind of basis for, for evaluating uh, alternatives. So I mean, I do you like the cap-and-trade model, then? It has... There are the aspects of it that I do, the parts of it that I, you know, not. There's, there's our, I mean, uh, one of our California Energy Commissioners, Art Rosenfeld, has, has proposed alter, alternative uh, ways, where you, fee baits, where you sort of pay a, a, a fee if you don't do certain things and you get rebates if you do. So there's sort of the carrot and stick. But I think it is about monetizing uh, this ultimately so that you, the true life cycle costs are incorporated in evaluating any alternative. I was just going to say that, um, in a way, on the gender issue, that's what mm -hmm. Amartya Sen did with the issue of missing women. In uh, uh, The economist Amartya Sen, who uh, received the Nobel Prize a few years ago, um, amongst the women's movement internationally, is revered because he um, monetized the cost of missing girls um, because of neglect and infanticide and devaluing women and girls in countries like China, India, Pakistan, um, uh, Bangladesh. Um, and the, the ability to do that and to realize what the actual human resource cost of that is to, um, to a country um, takes it away from just sort of a moral issue of saying, well, you know, this is a terrible way to treat people because X and Y, and, and puts a real price on what that means for the future of a country's development. So, I mean, I think there's some real reasons for us to to get smart about that kind of work. I wish we had more time. I have so many, not only these questions, but even some of the ones that we had developed. Um, and I would, would love to hear your stories. I, I, uh, let's do this again. <laughs> let's have dinner again. Maybe in a year, maybe in a, in two, we'll, uh, we'll check in. For all you students and, and those listening, we actually do something like this every Wednesday afternoon, believe it or not. Maybe not quite as grand, and, not, and certainly not as many speakers. Some of the, uh, the folks in this panel have participated in that, and that is the uh, Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar Series. And it, it was particularly, um, I'm particularly pleased that we were able to pull this together this week as part of Entrepreneur's Week, because this is hump day on Entrepreneur's Week. We started last Saturday, and we're halfway through. A number of you, uh, especially the students in the room, are participating in a contest that is, uh, I guess you're going to work a lot tonight because uh, I guess your early entries are coming in tomorrow. And hopefully you'll be down here uh, as a finalist on right in this stage uh, on Saturday. So I want everybody to join me in thanking Brooke, Paul, Jeff, KR, Chip, and Kavita for an amazing hour and a half. <laughs>